This is Shine On, the Health and Happiness Show, and Ella's Leash Production. Heard as a podcast around the world, but heard first on radio stations 100.7 WHUD-FM and Real Country 920, 1260, and 1420 AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Shine On, bringing you healers and dreamers and people who want to make life richer. It's your time to shine on. Hi, it's Casey. Thank you so much for shining on today. We are going to speak with Dr. Michael Greger with some amazing information. He is such a smart guy and he's got some information you are really going to be glad you heard today. That's coming up. First, we're going to talk about the birds. Oh, I love the birds. Now, let me tell you why. When my dad passed away, which I can't believe was like 12 years ago now, I remember walking out of the hospital and looking up at nature the blue sky and a tree that was just thinking about maybe, you know, budding and and getting leaves in the future. And, And I looked at this life and I said, wow, dad, like I had this knowing. I said, you're a part of all this now, you know? And I just knew that the spirit of dad was alive in the sky and alive in the tree. And I looked at all of nature differently. And that day I went out or soon thereafter. I doubt I would buy a bird feeder that day, but maybe it was like the next day. I went out and bought a bird feeder and I've been feeding the birds ever since and it's been just so joyful. For years and years I fed the birds, I didn't know what I was feeding. I have one I call the Jeter bird because it sounds like it's saying, Jeter, Jeter. Um, But I've I've come to find out that is a tufted titmouse or a titmouse. And I know the juncos, the juncos look like the vanilla on the bottom and chocolate on top. But my great joy was last year, somebody on Facebook posted, a veterinarian posted, Dr. Bumstead. Dr. Bumstead posted on Facebook last year that a a ruby-throated or a red-breasted gross beak, I think it was a ruby-breasted gross beak, this beautiful little bird that looked like he was wearing a red bow tie, uh, had appeared in his yard. They're just migrating on their way to somewhere else. And wouldn't you know what? I found one in my yard. And I was so excited about that that I posted back on Facebook to the vet, hey, look what I found one too. Well, almost a year to the day later, this past uh, early May, I got another ruby-throated gross beak or red breast. I don't know. They're just, I'm loving the birds, okay? So today... We've got a great big bird expert joining us. Jennifer Ackerman has been writing about science, nature, and human biology for 30 years. Her most recent books include Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, Dream, A Day in the Life of Your Body, Achu, The Uncommon Life of the Cold, The Genius of Birds, and Birds by the Shore. And her latest book is called The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent, and think. And there are even some birds we should be a little bit afraid of. Jennifer Ackerman, how do you learn the things you write about? A lot of the research I did, I depend on scientists for. Um, So I go out in the field with the scientists who are studying the birds, and I trace along behind them, and I ask them endless questions, and they're extremely patient with me. But I get to learn from them, and it's, it's really being at the front lines. It's why I can write about groundbreaking research in bird science because I'm out there with the scientists who are actually doing, conducting the studies. And so I get to to observe firsthand some of the incredible things that they're learning that are really overturning our old ideas about how birds conduct their lives. All right. What can you tell us? What's the thing you most want everyone to know about your, what you found out? Well, I think one of the 
the probably the most important thing is that we used to think that the brains of birds were so small and primitive they were really capable of only the simplest mental processes, you know. And now we understand a bird's brain is really this miracle of miniaturization. It's dense with neurons, it's super efficient, and it's capable of these really astonishing mental feats. So, you know, birds, they can think logically, they can solve complex problems they've never seen before, they can make and use tools, including fire, I learned in the book, uh, researching the book. Um, they can teach one another new things, they can count, they can communicate in ways that resemble language. And, you know, they have astonishing memories. They can, they can remember the past. They can also plan for the future. So I think the big message for me is just there is a lot going on in the bird mind. And we're just beginning to understand um, just how, how complex they are in their thinking. Did you say that the birds can use fire? That's one of my, my favorite stories in this um, book is that um, there's, there are birds called firehawks in Australia, and they're really showing us that birds actually may be able to use fire as a tool. So what happens is that, you know, raptors of all kinds often hunt around wildfires to feast on the critters that are fleeing the flames. But it's one thing to feed at an already raging fire. It's quite another one to, to, to start a, a fire yourself. But some of these Australian raptors seem to be doing exactly that. They're flying into active fires. They're intentionally picking up smoldering sticks. And then they drop them in an unburned area of brush or grass. Oh, my. And so they're, they're spreading the flames to new areas. And it's really this kind of startling behavior that, that <laughs> may break down, you know, another barrier that we thought separated humans from other animals because we thought we were the only species to use fire as a tool. Wow, that's a little scary. That is a little scary right there. Let me ask you this, Jennifer Ackerman, author of The Bird Way. Do my birds in the backyard, like, do they recognize me? Do they care about me at all? Do they, they don't seem alarmed by me or my dogs or my cat. We're all sort of cohabitating together. Do your backyard birds get used to you? Yes, they do. They're very adaptable in that way. They get used to you. They probably also recognize you, at least some of the smarter species like crows and blackbirds. And, you know, people are telling me, since I wrote this book, I've got lots of stories about people really feeling that, that the birds, individual birds, recognize that they are the, that, that those people are the ones feeding them. And they're very tolerant. They're very accepting of their presence. And they will, these birds sometimes will even come to the window and peck at it if the feeder is empty. So it's a remarkable thing that birds really do adapt to human presence, at least, you know, some species, particularly sparrows, finches, crows, blackbirds, and grackles, those kinds of birds. It's really amazing. The term bird brain really is a misnomer because they've got a lot going on in those brains of theirs. Yeah, well, it's now it's kind of a compliment. Yeah, now it's kind of a compliment. The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent, and think. This is a ridiculous question. Can birds of different species understand each other? It's not a ridiculous question. It's a really good, good question. And the answer is yes, especially when birds issue alarm calls. So there are two birds that I write about. The chickadee, which is... Um, you know, very common bird uh, around uh, many parts of the United States. 
And the chickadees have a remarkable language like alarm call that um, specifies both the type of predator, whether it's coming from the air or from the land, and the magnitude of threat that the predator represents. So it's the number of those little DDDs at the end of a chickadee's call that suggests the predator's size and hence the degree of threat that it represents. And other birds understand nuthatches, wrens, they understand the chickadee's warning call and will heed it. And they'll sometimes mob birds together, lots of different species working together. So that one example. The other is the New Holland honey eater, which is one of my favorite birds in the book. And it's a bird in Australia, and it is toppling old ideas about how much information a bird can convey in its calls or songs. So when this bird spots a threat like a hawk, it lets loose an alarm call that's just packed with detailed information. This call can tell other birds what kind of predator is coming, where it's arriving from, how far away it is, how fast it's flying, when to dive for cover, and even when it's safe to come out of hiding again. So just so cool that different species of birds actually understand in detail the honey eater's warning message and they heed it. So yes, birds can understand each other's languages. And that is tremendously cool, but you know what else is tremendously cool? That you get to hang out with the scientists who figured this stuff out. That blows my mind. Going back to the chickadee that, you know, when he does the the superlatives at the end, somebody figured out that meant bigger, harder, stronger, faster, something, right? Exactly. And, you know, these scientists are incredibly devoted in their work, and they spend hours and hours and hours in the field, both videotaping and also doing playback experiments where they actually play the alarm calls and they observe the bird's behavior uh, around and film it. Their their dedication is extraordinary and then they you know they analyze the film, the footage. It's very meticulous work and you know they they, they put themselves in dangerous situations. They it, it's really very inspiring and just amazing to me and I and I love being out in the field with them and watching them at work. All right. I have to let you go, but before I do, The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, and parent and think. Jennifer Ackerman, can you Ackerman, can you describe the cover of the book to us cause, so people can find it? Oh, yes. It's a beautiful jacket thanks to a painting by um, Indonesian artist Unikate Negroho. It's a group of superb starlings, blue and aquamarine on their back, brown on their chest. And they're having quite a conversation. There are five birds on the cover, and they're all talking. Jennifer Ackerman, the new book, The Bird Way. Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for tuning in today. Do you know on Monday I'm having like a little mini retreat? It's online. You should join. It's 90 minutes, Monday from 1 to 2.30. It's called Unlock Your Potential. Get your toolkit to unlock your potential. It's one of my favorite programs that I present. I love it. I just love it, and I would love for you to be there. Monday, 1 to 2.30, you can sign up at Casey.co, K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Now, we welcome back to the program Dr. Michael Greger. He's been on a couple of times before. Here's fair warning, he's a fast talker. He's a fast talker, but what he says is worth listening to. So so lean in and try to keep up with Dr. Michael Greger. Doctor, I have many books on my nightstand. Two of them are yours, How Not to Die and How Not to Diet. Oh, my God. 
God, well, it looks like uh, there's a new book we got to put on there, How to Survive a Pandemic. Now, did you just pull this together all of a sudden? Well, I, actually, the first half of my life, my professional life, was uh, in public health on infectious disease. So I have a long history of publishing on, on, this, on this topic. But uh, look, no one listened to me. Shouting from the rooftops right. for over a decade now. So I've been, you know, changing my focus to chronic disease. But it's so nice to be able to, you know, dig up all that work and uh, come out with this, uh, uh, get this new work into the world. What weren't we hearing when you first started to write about this? What did we miss? Oh my God! Well, we met, I mean, we just weren't prepared. I mean, the countries around the world that were um, the best able to deal with this, uh, like Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore, they had recently suffered um, outbreaks of these uh, of these uh, deadly coronaviruses, like SARS, like MERS. Uh, South Korea had a big MERS outbreak in uh, 2015, so they were prepared. Um, uh, whereas the rest of the world. Um, was kind of blissfully ignorant um, and did not have uh, the, the capacity in place. But hopefully, um, if, you know, in that case, uh, you know, dozens of deaths or hundreds of deaths rallied entire countries to the state of pandemic preparedness, hopefully the, uh, you know, millions potentially of deaths from COVID-19 will reorient the entire world towards pandemic prevention, uh, preventing the next uh, deadly outbreak in the first place. Why did we have a pandemic? Why did this happen? Why wasn't it contained? But you know, over the last few decades, hundreds of human pathogens have emerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. You say, wait a second, emerged from where? Mostly from animals. Uh, the AIDS virus is blamed on the butchering of primates and the bushmeat trade in Africa. Uh, mad cow disease was because we turned uh, cows into carnivores and cannibals. Uh, SARS and COVID-19 have been traced back to the exotic wild animal trade. You know, but our last pandemic, uh, swine flu in 2009, arose not from some you know, backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely uh, made in the USA on pig operations in the United States. Thankfully, uh, swine flu only killed about a half a million people, but the next time, we might not be so lucky. Okay. I don't even remember swine flu killing a half a million people in 2009. That happened in the United States? That happened worldwide, only a half million people dead, making it a Category 1 pandemic. That's the, the CDC's, uh, it's kind of uh, analogous to the um, Hurricane Severity Index, uh, with Category 1 through 5. So that was a Category 1 pandemic. Um, uh, COVID-19 is uh, looking uh, like it's going to be a Category 2 pandemic, with a case fatality rate under 0.5%. Uh, but historically, there was a Category 5 pandemic in 1918. And the current uh, leading candidate for the next pandemic is a bird flu virus circulating known as H7N9, which is 100 times deadlier than COVID-19. Instead of you know, 1 in 250 cases dying, H7N9 has killed 40% of the people it infects. I mean, imagine a, a virus like that um, infecting billions around the world with, you know, where death is closer to a, a flip of a coin. Okay. Um, but the good news is, is there something we can do about it? You know, just as eliminating the exotic animal trade and live animal markets uh, may go a long way towards preventing the next coronavirus pandemic, reforming the way we raise domestic animals for food may help forestall the next killer flu. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Michael Greger. His book is How to Survive a Pandemic. So what did you say, H29? What is this next? H 
seven and nine. Eight. Unprecedented emergence of, of that and ten other bird flu viruses. Newly infecting people in the world has been blamed on this industrial poultry production. That's really um, where our focus needs to go in terms of preventing the next uh, killer flu. Okay, but how do we change uh, people invading exotic animals and, and this uh, poultry production? And I mean, this seems like an impossible thing to do in a capitalistic world. Well, look, uh, the American Public Health Association has called for a moratorium on the so-called factory farming for over a decade now. You know, COVID-19 may be the kind of the dry run we needed, the kind of fire drill to wake us up, uh, you know, from our complacency to reform the food system uh, before it's too late. You know, when we overcrowd tens of thousands of animals in these cramped, filthy, you know, football field-sized sheds to lie, you know, beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist, it's just a, a breeding ground for disease. The sheer number of animals, the overcrowding, the stress crippling, the immune system, the, the, the ammonia from the decomposing waste, burning their lungs, lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight, you know, put all these factors together, they really have kind of the perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called uh, super strains of influenza. But look, uh, you know, uh, this is, you know, the, this is, uh, factory farm is a relatively new phenomenon. You know, we can give these animals more breathing room. Uh, they're the ones that could use a little social distancing, frankly. Mm-hmm. And look, yeah, capitalism, look, uh, Tyson, some of the, me- the biggest meat producers in the world, Cargill, uh, which is the largest private corporation in the country, one of the biggest meat packers in the world, Tyson, Purdue, Smithfield, Hormel, the makers of Spam, they have all started innovating us out of this precarious situation by making plant-based meat alternatives. There's this uh, tremendous um, uh, uh, demand now for these plant-based uh, meats, uh, plant-based egg products, plant-based milks. Um, and so uh, by choosing those products, uh, not necessarily the best for personal health, but from a, from a pandemic risk str- uh, standpoint, you know, there's zero threat. Okay, you're saying to me, Dr. Greger, plant-based meat isn't the greatest? Oh well, I mean it's it's better than it's better than the animal-based equivalent, but ideally the healthiest foods are these whole plant foods like you know fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes, beans, chickpeas, chickpeas and lentils, you know uh, mushrooms, herbs and spices. Basically, real food that grows out of the ground. These are really our healthiest choices. But you know, chronic disease risk aside, um, you know, eating you know one of these you know uh, you know like the Impossible Burger at Burger King, um, uh, um, you know uh, that. Uh, you know, yes, it has sodium, and yes, it has saturated fat from the coconut oil. Um, so, yeah, it's not as healthy as, 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 you know, eating a salad or something, but certainly healthier than choosing the beef burger from both a personal uh, health standpoint, from a global environmental health standpoint, and from a global infectious disease standpoint, because you cut animals out of the equation. Cut animals out of the equation. Okay. Now, here we are. We're starting to reopen our states, and moving forward... Should we be wearing masks? What should we be doing? How do we move forward and stay healthy? Oh, absolutely. We should be covering our faces um, uh, whenever we come in contact with those outside because you never know who's infectious because we don't have sufficient testing in place. And you become contagious before you start showing symptoms. So you look perfectly fine, feel perfectly fine, but maybe exhaling um, you know, virus with every breath. So what we need to do is stick to the CDC reopening criteria, which half the states have not been doing. Uh, we need to protect the most vulnerable, those over age 65, or anyone who comes in contact with those over age 65. 65 with this kind of layered social distancing, pumping the brakes to prevent the healthcare system from becoming overwhelmed until we can stop this virus either with a vaccine or natural human 
um, kind of herd immunity when sufficient numbers of the population have become infected. Um, uh, but yeah, COVID-19 may just be kind of a dress rehearsal for an even greater threat. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, with your global airline travel, uh, you know, uh, viruses can escape uh, our grasp within a matter of days. We need to prevent the emergence of these viruses in the first place. Okay. If you could map out the future for all of us, what would you do to help us avoid this situation again? Yeah, and this, uh, you know, new age of emerging diseases, there are now billions of uh, feathered and curly-tailed test tubes for viruses to, to incubate and mutate within billions more spins at pandemic roulette. But along with human culpability comes hope. If changes in human behavior may can cause new plagues, well, then, you know, changes in human behavior may prevent them in the future. We may be, you know one bush meat meal away from the next HIV, one pangolin plate away from the next killer coronavirus, and one factory farm away from the next uh, deadly flu. Tragically, uh, we don't tend to shore up the levees till after disaster strikes, and it may take a pandemic that wipes out millions before the world realizes the true cost of cheap chicken. All right. What did we do right? Did we do anything right in this reaction? Um, well, uh, certainly some countries have done amazingly well. I mean, Australia, the, the big um, uh, you know, uh, landmark this week is they finally reached 100 fatalities. We're at 100,000 fatalities. Taiwan just has seven deaths, period, over the, over the last few months, and they have a population of 23 million. Um, so some countries, um, because of their recent exposure to other deadly coronavirus outbreaks like SARS and MERS, they were prepared. They were ready. Unfortunately, we were not, but the next time, the silver lining is that we may be more prepared um, for the future, which may still be this fall. Um, if this virus acts like influenza, that we could be in for a, a large fall wave, which is even deadlier, since only about 4% of Americans have been infected so far. We really need like 60 or 70% to be infected um, to, to, to stop this virus in its tracks in terms of herd immunity. So that's still, you know, imagine all the devastation that's happened so far. We still have 15 times that um, uh, to go um, unless we have a vaccine, uh, which we shouldn't uh, expect uh, at least available for the general population until the second half of next year. Okay, let's talk about the vaccine. What do you know? What do you see? What do you hear? Well, you know, it's humbling to realize that historically the average vaccine has taken 11 years to develop, um, and the average failure rate of vaccines is 94%. Um, though, uh, look, there's more than 100 vaccine candidates now in the pipeline, so we should expect at least a few of those uh, to work. Um, but uh, it's not going to be available anytime soon for the general population. Um, and without a vaccine, herd immunity is really only achieved the hard way through mass infection. But look, you can't get the virus unless the virus can get to you. So, you know, I talk about some of the common sense measures we can take to reduce our risk. Um, you know, hand hygiene and respiratory um, hygiene, surface disinfection, everything from masks to making your own hand sanitizer. But really, the best way to survive a pandemic is to prevent it in the first place. And so that's really the, the bulk of the book centers around tracing the origins of the COVID coronavirus and what we can do to, you know, prevent even greater infectious disease outbreaks in the future. Dr. Michael Greger, How to Survive a Pandemic, where can we go for more information about you? We can go to nutritionfacts.org, and I just want to add, uh, I don't receive a penny uh, from my books. All proceeds I get from this new book is donated directly to charity. So, you know, I just want everyone to have access to this life-saving information. That's Dr. Michael Greger, nutritionfacts.org. He wants you to go there, and I do too. He doesn't make money on his books. He just wants you to have the information, nutritionfacts.org.
Hi, I'm Casey. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope, 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 hope I will see you Monday at one o'clock. Go to Casey.co, K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O and sign up for the toolkit to unlock your potential. It's a 90 minute uh, seminar and really we're going to have a time at the end for Q&A. So um, I hope you'll be there. Okay. Our thought for the day harkens back to our talk of the birds. And this is a poem by Mary Oliver. The poem is called Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, The world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Mary Oliver, Wild Geese. Love one another. Shine on. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show for your entertainment only. Heard Sunday mornings on 100.7 WHUD and on Real Country's 920, 1260, and 1420 AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Subscribe to Shine On on iTunes and SoundCloud and catch a show anytime at Casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Shine On.